We're going to continue with the life of Christ. Um, we're still in the, the very beginning stages of this, and we're going to stay in the book of John, because as, as I've said, John gives us some looks at some of the ministry that Jesus had before his great Galilean ministry that were the synoptic gospels part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they do most of their uh, recording. Um, and today, we're right off the bat jumping into what some see as controversial, because we're going to start with um, Jesus going to Jerusalem and cleansing the temple. And right away, for those of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you know that the Synoptics, the Synoptic Gospels, have this at the end of Jesus' ministry as the thing that actually during his Passion Week started off uh, a lot of the problems of the, the rulers of the Sanhedrin wanting to get rid of him. So we're left with a puzzle. So, and here's, here's how it works out. It's because we're going to get this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So the question is, well, where is it, where is it supposed to be? Or were there two? Or what all, what all is this? Well, your options, and there are people who, who are sound biblical scholars and believing Christians who will believe any of the theories I'm about to give you. Uh, one is that... The, 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 the actual temple cleansing only took place near the end of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus came into Jerusalem that last time. And that John takes it and places it thematically, puts it, puts it at the beginning to do thematic things with it, to actually show that Jesus has in mind his ultimate, and we will see this, his ultimate crucifixion, that goal, and to start right off the bat, the antipathy between he and the ruling Jews of the day. So thematically, John places it there. There are others who would say that actually it happened where John has it, and that the synoptic writers place it where they do, because they don't talk about Jesus visiting Jerusalem except at the end of his ministry, whereas John has Jesus in Jerusalem frequently. So. For them, it was, they placed it there because it's the only time they are talking about Jesus being in Jerusalem. And of course, the other option is that it happened twice. At the beginning of his ministry, here, as we see in John, that Jesus does this, and then things settle, basically. And then at the end of his ministry, he does it Again, only with some slightly different, we have some different wording, different, different ways that it, that it happened. So which is it? All right. Um, we'll take a vote. Yes, majority equals God's will. Yes, okay. Um, <laughs> cast lots. Um, like I said, there are, there are biblical scholars who, who hold all of those positions. I used to be, I've kind of changed, okay, uh, over, the t over time. I used to think that it was John who placed it thematically where it is. But uh, I've come to the opinion now, and, I'm, and again, it's not fighting words or anything, um, that it happened twice, that I think it makes sense for it to happen at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. One of the reasons I would say that is that um, when Jesus is on trial, some of the things they bring up about him 
are some things that happen in this passage. And the accounts are really fuzzy. They get them mixed up about what Jesus says in the passage we're about to read. They get it mixed up and they get it wrong, which seems to make sense if it was, had some time had passed. If it had just happened, it seems like their accounts would be dead on. But if time had passed, it seems like more would have happened. And I just think it makes better sense of, of the Gospels as we have them presented. And again, there are people who, who would discuss this for, for a long time. We're going to proceed as if, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, this is the first of two times that Jesus whoops up some people in the temple. Okay, so the first of two times. We, when we left off, we left off with Jesus and his few disciples that he has right now, four or five, depending on how you interpret what happened in, in uh, John chapter 1. They're in Capernaum, and now we're going to see that he goes up to Jerusalem. And it's during Passover. And what's intriguing about that is now you have the Lamb of God. He's already been declared the Lamb of God. Jesus, I mean, John the Baptist has said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here you have the Lamb of God coming to a Passover feast. He who is the fulfillment of the Passover. That towards which the Passover points is Jesus himself and his sacrifice for us. And he's at the temple. That which the temple points to the place where heaven and earth meet, where God meets his people. That is the type of what Jesus is. So here you have the fulfillment of both the temple and the Passover, the Lamb of God. Here is his first truly out there public act. Now he's already done something publicly with the wedding, but that was more family and friends and in Cana, Cana of Galilee out in the backwater. And now he's in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, we have a tendency to think of this, well, he's at the main church. He's at First Press, or he's at First Baptist, or pick a one of the firsts around here. Okay, so, but that's not the case. Remember, the temple represents the beating heart of Israel itself. This is symbolic of all that Judaism and the sacrificial system and God's impending kingdom represents. Remember, there was no separation of church and state. This represents the heart of Israel. And he's coming at the high festival. And let's see what happens. So I want someone, Jay. Yeah. Here. My other reader's not here. <laughs> I want you to read verses 13 to 22 of chapter 2, John. 13 to 22, chapter 2. Play by play. <laughs> okay. Chapter 13. The Passover of the Jews is near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and stubs, and a whole bunch of garbage that had no relation to religion. And uh, money No additions, Jay. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Okay. Yeah. I'm, all right. And the money changers seated at the table. Wow. Bunch of, bunch of cooks, I bet. <laughs> Making a whip out of cords and drove all of them out of the temple. Both the sheep and the cattle, he also poured out the coins of the money changers 
Oh, the turkey, you have your party. Wow. <laughs> Turns flew over the table. He told those who were selling the drugs, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples would remember that it was written. Zeal for your house. It will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus announced it. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up again. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? <clears throat> but he was speaking of the temple of the body. After he was raised up, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and this, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right, thank you, sir. Okay. Notice with that last verse there, we have a reflection that John says, it was after he was resurrected that the disciples, including himself, that the disciples remembered what he said and kind of put it all together. And it's intriguing that, that this gives us a, a glimpse into, remember John is writing this to, to an audience to help them understand the nature of who Jesus is as the Son of God. And it's written after the other Gospels. So there's, always, there's a lot of times where he's reflecting back. And here's one of those times where he is reflecting back. And it's also, he also explains some things, he'll translate things, he'll do stuff for his audience so they know what's going on. Notice he calls it the Passover of the Jews in the first verse that we read for today. Why? You know, it seems almost redundant. Um, but for his audience, to help them understand, it's the Passover time of the Jews. This is the, the annual festival that all Jewish males were required to attend. And as we've talked about before, not all could. In the, uh, you know, but when you did, when, when this happened in Jerusalem, there were a lot of people. People came, Jews from the diaspora who had been dispersed, would come back into Jerusalem and come for this high festival. Yes? <coughs> Said it will pass over for the Samaritans. No, that's intriguing. Um, I hadn't read anything about that, but for him to make that distinction. Samaritans would practice a lot of the Jewish customs. Correct. Yeah, at their high place. But not be allowed, or wouldn't be welcome for for sure. That's good. Keep that up. <laughs> Don't be thinking during these things. <laughs> All right. Um, well, we, we're familiar with this enough to know what's going on, but John's account, um, Jesus is, doesn't appear to be upset because they're necessarily doing anything crooked. Now, in the other accounts, in, in the later accounts of the second cleansing, he's, he's called him den of thieves, of brigands. He's, you know, because of the people who are scalping money off the top, those kinds of things. Here he seems more upset just by their presence. Not necessarily crooked practices at this point, but just their presence. So we're going to have to unpack that a little bit. Well, why would they be there in the first place? First of all, they're not actually in the inner sanctuary, the actual temple proper. They're on the temple grounds in the court of the Gentiles. 
and people would travel and they wouldn't bring normally you wouldn't travel with the animal you were going to sacrifice you would purchase the animal there additionally you, there was a temple tax that was paid and that was paid with a particular type of coin a temple coin and that had to be exchanged so what they're doing is helping facilitate what people were supposed to do in other words it's in and of itself it's not a bad thing so what's the problem well, remember this is the court of the Gentiles Israel is supposed to be a light to the world this is the only place where the Gentiles can go to the temple and if they're going to worship this is the only place they can and here you have this place that is supposed to be a light to the nations basically turned into a market the market itself the thing that they're doing is not bad but we it should be outside the temple precinct done before you get to this high holy place you've already ascended to the temple mount and here you have a bazaar basically and that seems to be what at least on the surface is is wrong with what's happening were there probably some shady dealings as well maybe scalping off the top sure but at this point it's more about the fact that they're even there that is the problem and of course we we are often uh, we often fall in this trap we're doing things that in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong but in the wrong place or the wrong time those kinds of things we fall prey to that quite a bit um, we can actually get you know I, I warn the students all the time you can get so busy with good things that you kind of schedule out actual time with God this is not necessarily a bad thing but the way it's being done has pushed out an area of true worship so Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, this is, doesn't fit, does it? <laughs> that, particular, that particular caricature of Jesus about what he's about to do. Yes, sir? Um, if they brought their own uh, animals to sacrifice, they had to be kind of perfect, and uh, they would inspect them in there. If, otherwise, they'd have to buy one from uh, the merchants. Right. Yeah. If you brought your animal, it had to be inspected to be worthy of sacrifice. And if it didn't pass, this is what we were just told, you'd have to buy one. There's also talk, you know, you read, of, especially in, about the later accounts where Jesus is concerned about crooked dealings, that there was probably sort of, a, sort of an underside to this about they wouldn't approve any animal so that you had to buy from, from these sellers. Well, all that to say... Given this, Jesus takes a, he makes a scourge out of cords, rope, whatever is available. Remember, this is a lot of animals right now. He's in a farm. It's a barnyard, so there's a lot of that available. Makes a scourge and drives them out. Um, turns over their tables, the coinage going over. It's, it's a scene which, again, doesn't fit our usual understandings of Jesus. You know, this is, and this is his first real public thing. Uh, and here he is driving these people out. Not because he's some big, strong superhero. There's some sort of authority that comes along with him doing this. 
Um, you know, just to suddenly, you know, what if we were in our church service and suddenly just someone came in? So what is all this? And turns over stuff on the, on the chancel and starts throwing hymnals around and, you know, pulls stops out on the organ. I don't know, whatever. Um, pulling out all the stops. Uh-huh. There you go. See, I just, I, yes. In other words, we would, I mean, this is kind of what you see here. Okay, there's a shock value that comes along with it as well. Uh, it's intriguing, the word for sitting at their tables actually means sitting cross-legged. So you have these guys sitting cross-legged at their tables with their money. And anyway, so there's all this stuff happening. And then he addresses those who are selling doves. Now, he didn't drive them out because they're in wicker baskets, right? So he didn't, he, why doesn't he drive the doves away? Well, they're in baskets. So he tells them to take them out of here. And then the famous line, my father's, you've made, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Stop making this a shopping mall. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Wow. All right. Well, this is going to arouse some attention. And that attention is aroused, we're told. Well, well first of all, we, say that we see that the disciples remember Psalm 69.9. It's a psalm of David about his being consumed with zeal for God's things in the house of God. And his disciples put that together, that Jesus is consumed with zeal for the house. That term consumed, they have no understanding fully of what that might mean. They might, they might be thinking this is going to lead to trouble. But he will ultimately be consumed for the things of God for us. So there's a lot more going on. Yes, ma'am. A quick question. Yes. What was the directive that he created that part of the temple? What was the directive for creating? What was, what was the command or the, that, where they created that section of, of the temple ground for the Gentiles? Because they needed that for the Gentiles for, Part of it's just practical. There's always a lot of Gentiles in, and there's just like we would, we'd want to sightsee. So there's that, and that odd. We don't think of people sightseeing back then, but they did. But the second is, too, for proselytes, for those who are in process of becoming Jews, there had to be a way for them to be a part of the worship of Israel, but only notice the, the physical distance. And it was more of a colonnade around the temple precinct itself. But that's, that's the point behind it. And if I, you, I, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know. It's a long way from doing something on purpose for prophesying. Does anyone know that one? I mean, that one I, I don't know about the directives we have in Scripture for the building of the temple, if that's in there. I, I really don't. Does anyone but it is modeled after, you know, the sanctuary. You have, remember, there's successive layers of being able to approach the, the, the temple proper and the holy, the holy place. So you had the court of Gentiles, then the court of women, the court of men, and the court of priests. So you, you went further and further in um, as you were going. So I, I, that's your assignment for the week. Good. Now, don't do it during the lesson. <laughs> I see that all the time, you know. Yeah, so. <laughs> all 
all right. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So this consumption. Well, this calls for explanation. So the Jews. Now, John uses the term the Jews um, just sort of as a general phrase, most often meaning the, the rulers aligned against Jesus himself. Uh, and these Jews. So this could have been part of the Sanhedrin, um, some of the temple guard. We don't know. Um, and he says, and they say, so by what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? Failing to recognize, of course, that what he just did was one of those signs. That's part of the irony here. What he just did is symbolic. Uh, if you look at Malachi chapter 3, or when you look in Malachi chapter 3, Beginning at, the, at verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He'll clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. So you have Jesus as one of his first acts of public ministry coming to the temple as a sign that he is the Messiah. This is one of those things that points to him. And here they're asking, by what sign? Show us a sign. Paul, of course, famously says, the Jews ask for a sign. Greeks love wisdom. Seeing that you do these things. And Jesus said to them, and notice it's, it's rather cryptic, and it's one of those things that John says, later we put it together. And that cryptic thing is, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And of course, we know as well, like the disciples on this side of the cross, to what he's referring. He's not saying the actual temple, the building. And here he's actually, the word he uses in the Greek, there's two different words. This he's actually, this is the word for the actual temple proper, where the, the holy place and the holy of holies is, that part. <coughs> Destroy this, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, interestingly, of course, part of what's going on here is that he's saying the way you're doing all of this, the way you're doing being Israel, is destroying the temple. And ultimately, it was destroyed in A.D. 70 and has never been rebuilt. But of course, we know as well that he's talking about his body, the temple, the fulfillment of the temple. Being loosed, being destroyed, being killed, and then three days later, raised. That's what already, notice this is the beginning of his ministry, and John gives us a glimpse into Jesus knows exactly where he's heading and what is to come. As he goes about his ministry, it's all pointing towards that moment. Well, of course, they don't know that, so they ask, well, it's taken 46 years just to get it to where it is right now. Herod the Great started the great, you know, he, he started 
refurbishing the temple early in his reign. And it's still not finished. And it will be finished about five years before it's destroyed. The actual, all the refurbishment. Um, and they're saying, and you're going to raise it up in three days? You're going to build it in three days? Now this is, of course, later in his trial, three years later, where they get it all mixed up. They're saying, he said he would destroy the temple, which he doesn't say. He's, he said he'd destroy the temple and build another temple. And they say more than they think, but it'll be a couple years before we get to that. All right. We're studying this in real time. <laughs> Took three years. We'll probably take that long. All right. So then John says that they remembered after his resurrection what he had said. New temple. All this new. The new wine. The new temple. And now we're going to get to a new birth. Here we have one of the first discourses, long discourses of Jesus. We're going to look at the beginning of it, sort of a teaser. And it's very famous, right? This is John 3, from which we get John 3, 16, which is made famous by football games. <laughs> right? Um, but, of course, we know one of the cornerstone verses of, of evangelism, and rightly so. Um, but before we get to that, let's set the scene. John provides, first of all, a little bit of background. He stayed in Jerusalem, obviously, for the entire week of the festival. And he did other things that John doesn't record. Other signs that we're not told about. And we're told that, that people do... Some people believe, but what's the nature of their belief? So, actually, in this section on new birth, let's go ahead and finish chapter 2 first. Someone read aloud... Verses 23 through 25 for us. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man. For he knew what was in a man. All right. The gist of this is that it doesn't appear that during this time he, had, he acquired any more of that inner circle of close disciples. We know he has those few with him at this point, but no more. Although a lot of people, including a guy we're about to meet named Nicodemus, did have some level of belief. They, they saw what was going on with these signs, and there was this, well, who... We, we know who this, who is this guy? But while they believed, Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't entrust himself to them. In other words, there's, there's belief, and then there's belief, if that makes sense. Um, and we, of course, know a lot of people who acknowledge that Jesus is something, right? I mean, you, you know, well, no, he's special. There's something about him. And even say, well, Jesus is Lord, without actually knowing all of what this entails. There's still more to come for them to truly figure out and understand the nature of his Messiahship and what he is doing. And we're told that Jesus, of course, kind of stays back from them, which is intriguing. Here's another thing that doesn't fit for us. Here you got this guy coming in, you know, just tearing up the temple, 
causing a ruckus, and now not stepping back from people as well. Remember, he, there's probably danger early on of this becoming a national movement. If they do believe this is the Messiah, hey, this is the guy. Let's get him. Let's put him out in front and make him our leader. Rather than not understanding the full import of Jesus' ministry. And he knew better because he knows what is in a person. A man here, sorry, and we're not being sensitive, but the word is anthropos at this point, man. Now that's right off, right alone, that's kind of scary. I don't know if you're stopping, maybe, maybe today, just stop and ponder that. He doesn't believe our resumes. Because he knows. That's why we're told here, he didn't need a witness to tell him about people because he knew people, and he still does. It's funny how we'll do all we can to make ourselves a certain thing, a product, whatever it might be. And I'm not saying you necessarily have to stop doing that. But ultimately, he sees through all of our resumes because he knows what is in a man. Well, knowing that, notice the next verse. There was a man. Notice that Nicodemus is referred to here right off the bat as a man. So, there was a man. Now, I, remember I told you about chapter divisions. Those have been added later. Here would be so much cooler if the chapter division wasn't there. Because we read it to the end of chapter 2 and then usually we'll go to bed or whatever it might be. And then we'll start chapter 3 and then forget that he's just said he knows what's in a man. And here comes a man. There's a, there's a point to this. And that man, some people say, why did he only call him a man? Why a man? Well, because of the verse right before it. That's why. Great staging. And here comes this man that Jesus knows better than he knows himself. So given that scenario, let's now read through verse 8. Someone read 3, 1 through 8. All right, again, probably quite familiar to all of us. Here you have a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He is, well, he is one of the rulers, so he's part of the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. They don't necessarily get along. And the Sadducees, of course, have a vested interest in the temple. And here you have a guy, a Pharisee, who probably, remember, Pharisees also have zeal. Remember Paul, Pharisee, zeal 
for, for Israel and the temple and, and is, all that it stands for. So having just heard that zeal for his father's house, zeal for my house will consume him, here you have Nicodemus, also a Pharisee, not necessarily probably disapproving of what Jesus did in the temple. Anytime he can get Sadducees to have their come up, and he's pretty satisfied. And the Sadducees are behind a lot of what's going on in the temple. And the Pharisees were ones who wanted to purify the worship at the temple and purify who Israel was through keeping the law. So here you have this guy, Nicodemus, a Pharisee of the Sanhedrin, coming to Jesus. Not necessarily disapproving of what Jesus had just done or sometime earlier in the week had done. We're going to meet Nicodemus later. Uh, Nicodemus is someone who tries to stand up for Jesus later. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see him later. Um, but he comes by night, and there's a lot of speculation. Why by night? Right off the bat, we're thinking, well, maybe he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. Maybe it's fear or just simply prudence. You know, just it's not cause any waves. Uh, although it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. There doesn't seem to be any judgment given here by John. It could just be that he wanted to be away from crowds so he could have a talk with the man, to get away from everybody. Uh, there's also speculation that, you know, part of, you know, mark of a good Pharisee was studying into the night, studying Torah into the night. And here you have Nicodemus coming as a good Pharisee at night. There's a lot going on here, but it doesn't necessarily have to be he was afraid to be identified with Jesus. Remember, at this point, people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. And you've got the percolations of animosity now amongst some of the ruling class, but here you have someone coming who's saying, okay, and he asks them some questions. First of all, he introduces himself. First he says, Rabbi. And remember, this is before there was a rabbinic class where you went through certain teaching and you were designated rabbi. There are people who did do these things, but it was just a term of, of respect, recognizing that this guy obviously knows, knows Torah, and there's something going on. So rabbi, we know, notice he says we, so he's representing a group, most likely, we know you've come from God as a teacher. No one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There has to be. There's something going on with you. And notice he, he begins like wanting to know, so tell me who you are. That's really what he wants to know. I've come. So you're doing all this. So can you tell me why and who you are? And you notice he's, you know, normal, what we would do, kind of probing and being endearing. And, and Jesus knowing what is in a man, cuts right to the chase. He doesn't waste any time. Notice he doesn't answer any question that Nicodemus has raised. He just jumps right in. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, and again, that's, John uses that quite a bit. This is the solemn truth that unless... One is born again or from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, that's more than Nicodemus probably bargained for coming into this conversation. But knowing what is in a man, he knows what Nicodemus 
needs and what we all need. So he tells him that unless there is new birth, supernatural birth, a radical transformative change from above by God himself, you can't even see what God is going to be doing, the kingdom of God. He's not talking about heaven. He's not talking about what happens after death. He's talking about that which is that towards which Israel was looking when the Messiah came, the coming of the kingdom manifest in their midst. He says, you won't even see this. You, a ruling class Pharisee, a descendant of Abraham. They all thought Israel, of course. Every member of Israel would see the kingdom when it came, comes. He's saying, you won't even see this unless there is a radical, transformative change from God. You have to be born. We're all born, by the way. You have to be born in order to deal with this world. Well, you have to be born from above to deal with that world. There has to be a new beginning. Some of your Bibles may say born from above or born again. And either translation is fine. There's probably a little bit of everything. But the whole point is that there has to be a new birth, radical transformation. This is not about your heritage. This is not about keeping the law. This is not about all the things you do to try to earn God's favor. There must be, from above, from God, a radical transformation, new creation, a new birth. That's what's got to happen. Yes, sir. Very good. Yeah, baptism with the Holy Spirit. We're gonna, he's going to talk about that here in just a moment. Good job. Well, now we have Nicodemus's response. Now, he's not being obtuse. It's not like Nicodemus isn't a wise man. We sometimes think that, like he's just, well, how are you going to be born again? You know, like, like he didn't know. In other words, we, we tend to make him dumber. Uh, he's, he's not probably asking that at all. He's He's probably recognizing at least sort of the, uh, there's got to be some radical thing. So he's saying, well, well, after someone's been living a whole life, notice he says, how can a man be born when he's old? In other words, you've gotten to this point in your life. How is a transformation like that even possible? I mean, it'd be great to have this new start. But what am I going to do, just be born again? I mean, how? In other words, it's, he's being more winsome kind of than obtuse, if that makes sense. I think. I don't think he's trying to just, oh, no. I think there's more to it than that. I mean, so, I mean, a good question, really, actually. So, how can that be? Yes, sir. He's kind of playing the straight man with Jesus. He's kind of, he's kind of letting Jesus come Playing forward. the straight man, okay. Yeah, he's, yeah. Play, he's playing the straight man. He said, well, you know, you can't be born again once you get old, so how's this, you know, yeah. Bum, 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 you know, yeah. <laughs> so Jesus is the comic. Okay. No. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. All right. Now, he's asked this question. So what we're about to read is supposed is Jesus clarifying it for him, which ironically causes a lot of division and a lot of confusion. 
for us on this side of it. In other words, he's saying something that, we're, that for Nicodemus should clarify, and for us leads to a lot of different, perhaps, interpretations. Because he says, right off the bat, here's the solemn truth. He says, truly, truly again. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 6 is clear. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, you're not going to progress. There's no evolution from the flesh to the Spirit. There's not something radical has to happen. And he says, unless you're born of water and Spirit. And of course, that's the Spirit part we get. Okay, birth from above, through God's Holy Spirit. What we just heard, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something new. But what does he mean by water? Well, there's a lot of, lot of uh, different understandings of that. Uh, some would see this as a reference to John's baptism. In other words, that there is this, is, this is something Nicodemus would understand, in other words. This, this water baptism, um, that, that's a mark of aligning yourself with the things of God's kingdom, preparing yourself for the Messiah. Repentance! And of course, the early church pattern, as we saw from the book of Acts, is to repent and confess and be, and be baptized and, 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 and be baptized in the Spirit as well. So for this later audience, they would hear that, but it has to be something that Nicodemus would understand right off the bat as well. And perhaps that's it. He's, ha he's saying, Nicodemus, you've got to be marked out. There is this new life in the Spirit, born of the Spirit, but you have to also identify through the water of repentance. Others would say that this is just about physical birth. You have to be born, you know, water, the water breaks, you have to be born, and then born again. But that seems too obvious, almost. Well, well yeah, you've got to be born. I mean, there's a better way to say that, probably. Uh, there are others who would say that as a Pharisee, he would hear... And there's Old Testament precedent for this. The term water used for sperm, for semen. That there is some sort of spiritual identity, a spiritual birth. In other words, to, uh, that, that, that that's tied in with all of this. And others would say Christian baptism, but Nicodemus, of course, wouldn't hear that yet. So I tend to go with the, the, this whole idea of identifying through repentance and baptism, water, which he would have heard. And of course, later, for his audience, they would hear that as baptism, which continued. Yes, ma'am. Well, and it's a public thing. At least if one other human being involved in that baptism, say you don't do it yourself. Right. And quite often, it's a communal situation. So it's a public, public. situation that you can't back away from. Others have seen you submit. Yeah. It's asking a lot of this guy. And he says, you're, and you're not going to do this through the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's got to be a radical change. You're not just going to progress. You can't depend on, again, your ancestry, you taking, taking all these steps to keep the law, all of that. That's not going to happen. And he says, don't be surprised that I say this. Should, this you have to be born again. You want to know about the kingdom of God, you've got to be born into the kingdom. 
And he then uses this illustration of the wind. And what's interesting, of course, and most of you probably know this, is that in both, in a lot of languages, in, in Hebrew and Greek, but also others, the word for spirit and wind and breath are the same exact word. Greek, it's pneuma, Hebrew, ruach. It's the same word in other languages as well, and which kind of makes sense. People understood that the, that which is not of the body, not physical, that animates someone, that, that's their true life, was their spirit. People recognized that when you ceased breathing, the person died. So the same word for breath and spirit, it seems makes sense to use the same word. And what is wind but a, a, a rushing of a lot of breath? So it's, you can see how that came about, that the same word would, in a lot of ancient languages would be, that would be the same thing. So here he is playing off of that. He's saying you're, you're wondering how the Spirit's going to do this, but it's just as mysterious as you're wondering about the wind. We don't know where the wind comes from, and it, of course we, we all, you know, we, can tr we piece all that together now scientifically, but where the wind came from, and where it's going, we don't know, but you see the results of the wind. While mysterious, there's no denying that the wind has an effect. And in the same way, while the birth, the new birth in the Spirit is, is mysterious, and that we can't fully fathom all of it, we do see the effects. Which, of course, leads Nicodemus to say, well, how can this be? Ah, well, there's the cliffhanger. <laughs> That's what we'll look at next week to find out how can this be. So we've seen so far in John's account, Jesus, of course, going to the wedding at Canaan and, and symbolizing not just, the, not just actual water to wine, but symbolizing with the ceremonial, to, ceremonial water jugs to, to wine, Something new, more fulfilling. Now, public ministry in the temple, actually bringing a word of judgment to how things have been happening and pointing towards himself as the new temple, the fulfillment of Passover and what the temple stands for. And now we're getting in this first discourse, an understanding of the radical nature of what he is asking where John the Baptist asked for people to come to the waters to identify with the kingdom of Israel, to be the light, to prepare the way for the belief in the Messiah through baptism. Now Jesus is saying that towards which he is pointing has come and the true baptism in the Spirit, new radical life. And I love that John has that right at the beginning so that we can... You know, as we see Jesus' ministry, we'll see that unfolding more and more and more. Any other questions? Or yes. One comment I found intriguing in a, in a commentary is in two nineteen the reference I will raise it up. He's also seemingly making a declaration about the deity, uh, Father, Son. I, yeah. For those of you in podcast land, uh, yeah, yeah the, the, the comment of when Jesus says, and I will raise it, whereas we're told that God the Father raises 
Jesus. Here you have a reference to him identifying with the Father. He and the Father are one. And one of those early looks at Trinitarianism and deity in that very great comment. Yes? So the idea of purification from Ezekiel, yeah. Um, and I've I, I read that, um, but it, it almost appears too cryptic for Nicodemus to, and for his audience, you know, John has to say it too for his audience to get too. So, but I, I mean, that's, that is a, a viable option. Uh, and that, of course, leads to that whole spiritual, what is it, spiritual generation idea through water. But yeah. A lot of options. I didn't give you all of them. <laughs> Just big, big ones. Yeah. All right. Let's pray together. Thanks, Father, for your word and for this time we can share together around your word. Thanks as well. Uh, that we, we can go and be active agents of what we have heard this morning. I uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us to show how we can live this new birth this week to demonstrate to others what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We look forward to that and give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.